Hi everyone and welcome to episode 14 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we are back in England for a very brutal blitz murder that happened in a small leafy village in East Kent, a village called Chillingdon. In 1996, Dr Lynn Russell lived in Chillingdon with her two daughters and her husband Sean. Their eldest daughter Josie was nine years old and their youngest daughter Megan was six. They'd moved to the village just the year before as Sean had got a new job lecturing at the University of Kent. The family had moved to Kent from their home in North Wales. However, despite the difference in scenery and life in general, Josie and Megan settled in quickly and attended the local school in their village. Settling into their new life was also made easier by the fact that they were able to move their horses over to Kent with them as horse riding was a hobby that Lynn enjoyed doing with her two daughters. On the 9th of July 1996, Lynn and her two daughters, Megan and Josie, were walking home from a swimming gala at around four in the afternoon. The three of them, along with their dog Lucy, were walking down a quiet country lane. Their walk home usually took 30 to 40 minutes and it was a route they had taken many times before. At approximately 4.20pm, a car drove past the family as they were walking down the lane. Nine-year-old Josie waved at the man in the car, as she often did to passers-by, because it was just that type of cute village area where everyone was friendly to everyone else. As the family rounded a slight corner in the lane, they noticed that the car had stopped and was parked diagonally across the track where they were walking. A man got out of the car, he was brandishing a hammer and demanding money. Lynn had left her purse at home, but she told the man she could go back to her house with him and get him some cash. The man said no. Lynn told Josie to run and get help. The man grabbed nine-year-old Josie and struck her with the hammer. He also hit Lynn a few times too in an attempt to gain control over them. He then walked the three of them into a denser area of trees and foliage. He opened up Josie's swimming bag and used her swimming towel and a pair of tights to tie the three to a tree and then he blindfolded them. A shoe or bootlace was also used, although this had not come from Josie's bag. The man then proceeded to attack Lynn and her two daughters with the hammer. Lynn Russell suffered at least 15 blows to the head, which caused severe skull and brain injury. Megan was hit over the head with the hammer upwards of seven times. Both Lynn and six-year-old Megan died as a result of their injuries. It's not clear how many times Josie was hit around the head, but her skull was smashed and her brain tissue was exposed. One report notes that there was extensive tearing to the outer layer of her brain. The man just walked away, got in his car and drove off. Back at their family home, Dr Sean Russell arrived home from work and was confused that his daughters and wife were not yet home. He called friends and neighbours and local hospitals to see if anyone had seen his family. When these phone calls offered up no help, he decided to call the police. With the police informed, Sean got in his car and drove the route that he knew his family had been walking home. Unbeknownst to him, he drove straight past the spot where his family had been stopped by their attacker. The police started an extensive search, and by about 1am, the police came across the three bodies of Lynn, Josie and Megan Russell. Dr Sean Russell was informed that his entire family had been murdered. A medical examiner was called to the scene to undertake the formal process of pronouncing them dead. Lynn and Megan Russell were pronounced dead at the scene, but, miraculously, the medical examiner found a faint pulse from nine-year-old Josie. She was rushed straight to hospital. At this point, I can't even imagine what Sean must have been feeling, being told your entire family had been murdered, but then finding out one of your daughters survived. 
I'm like it's certainly by no means a lifeline but hopefully he managed to find a small bit of strength and comfort from the fact that Josie was still alive yeah I totally agree it must have felt in that moment almost like a miracle Mm. no I I absolutely think it must have felt like a miracle and it was a miracle it was she suffered extensive injuries to her head and her brain while Sean spent his days sat beside Josie in hospital as she slowly recovered the police were working hard to try and find the violent murderer who was walking the streets of their quiet village They found witnesses who placed a man standing by Chillenden Windmill. This was just a short distance away from where the three had been attacked and witnesses placed him there just 30 minutes after the attacks had happened. This man was reportedly holding a claw hammer. Another witness reports seeing a man in a beige car parked up at around 5pm. The man was reportedly loitering around the bushes. At 5.30pm, that witness went back out to walk his dog and he went to the bushes to see what the man had been doing. There, he found a discarded bag containing strips of a towel covered in blood. A third witness also puts a beige car at the crime scene. This witness said that she was driving right past the lane where the attack had happened and saw a beige car speeding out. The car pulled straight out in front of her. She got a good look at the driver and managed to compile an EFIT sketch with the police. Other physical evidence included hairs on the girl's shoes that did not match anyone in the family. There was also a bloody fingerprint on the lunchbox that had been in Josie's swimming bag. The shoelace that had been used to tie up the girls was also found. This too was covered in blood. Because this was 1996, progress was very slow with regards to processing the DNA found at the scene, and the case lost a bit of momentum. In hospital, Josie's recovery was slow, but she was making progress. It took over a year for her to be able to speak again. On the anniversary of the murders, Crime Watch spoke about the murders and showed the EFIT on the TV. Shortly after this, a psychiatrist came forward to say that the EFIT looked strikingly similar to one of his patients. This patient's name was Michael Stone. Reportedly, Michael Stone had become increasingly agitated and his demeanour had changed during the weeks leading up to the murder. He'd even threatened to kill his probation officer and his family. Michael Stone was born in the 1960s into an abusive family. His mother had a string of husbands and boyfriends and these men beat Michael as a child. Michael and his sister were eventually taken into foster care, but the damage had seemingly been done. By the time he was in his 20s, he was battling a heroin addiction that he funded by committing a string of burglaries across Kent. During one of these burglaries, he hit the owner of the house with a mallet, for which he served a year in prison. Adding to this, he'd also served time in prison for stabbing his friend in the chest whilst he slept. Whilst he slept, Michael? Uh, Whilst the friend slept. Right. His longest stint behind bars was the six years out of the ten-year sentence he served for committing armed robbery. By this time, the police felt they had enough evidence on Michael Stone to bring him in for questioning. Michael had no alibi for the day of the attack, although he said this was because he was too high and couldn't remember what he'd been doing a year ago. The police were quite certain that Michael Stone was a good fit for this crime, especially when they looked back through other police reports and noted that a lawnmower had been stolen on the 9th of July 1996, the day of the attack, about a mile away from where the attack had taken place. The police were sure that this meant Michael Stone had been in the area on that day because stealing gardening equipment was Michael's burglary MO. Of course, this evidence was all circumstantial. Still the police charged him with the lawnmower burglary and so this allowed them to remand him in custody pending his trial. Shortly after this, several inmates reported that Michael Stone had confessed to the murders to other inmates. 
These inmates were questioned by the police and revealed specific details that Michael had supposedly said in his confessions to them. This was enough for prosecutors and the CPS, and Michael Stone was charged. So were these details then presumably that weren't publicly available and would allude to the fact that Michael, at a minimum, had some kind of inside knowledge about the crime? Um, so we kind of go into this later, but no, okay. these, this was all in the public domain, really. Okay. So two years after the attack and the murders, the trial began. There was no DNA evidence that linked Michael Stone to the crime, but the prosecution played heavily on the circumstantial evidence we spoke about earlier, the fact that his childhood was a recipe to creating a murderer, his drug addiction, the similarities between him and the EFIT, and most crucially, the testimonies of the inmates who swore under oath that Michael Stone had confessed. Josie Russell was also able to give testimony via a video. She was still unable to communicate fully, but was able to show what had happened during the attack by using dollies and other figurines. Michael Stone did not take the stand, as his lawyer didn't want him to show the jury his bad temper. The jury took less than two days to deliberate, and they found Michael Stone guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison for two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Less than 24 hours after the trial, one of the inmates started boasting that he'd lied in court and that Michael Stone had never confessed anything to him. Of course, Michael's lawyers appealed his conviction based on this. The absence of any concrete evidence and the fact that the entire trial really rested on these confessions resulted in the appeal being granted and a retrial was ordered. At the retrial, there was no new evidence. There was, however, an inmate who was certain that Michael Stone had confessed to the murders, and so once again the trial rested upon the testimony of an inmate. This inmate's name was Damien Daly. He claimed Michael had confessed to him through a crack in the heating pipe that connected their two cells. I read in one report that the prosecutors went to the prison, one sat in Michael's cell and the other sat in Damien's cell, and they read paragraphs from Harry Potter to each other through the crack in the heating pipe to see if they'd be able to clearly hear each other, it was concluded that they could accurately and clearly hear what the other was saying. Damien told the court, I am a crook, crooks beg, borrow and steal to get by in life. But if you were to say to me now, are you lying? I would say no, I am not lying. Damien's poetic testimony seemed to work and Michael was, once again convicted in 2001 and reportedly given three life sentences. 20 years later, Michael Stone still maintains his innocence. He has subsequently attempted two more appeals, however, each of these appeals has been denied. This is obviously not where the episode ends. There is a plethora of information out there that suggests that Michael Stone was wrongfully convicted and that a different, notorious murderer killed Lynn and Megan Russell and attempted to kill Josie. Sal, have you heard of Levi Belfield? Yeah, that definitely rings a bell. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Levi Belfield is in prison serving two life sentences for the murders of Marsha MacDonald, Amelie Delagrange and Millie Dowler and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Millie Dowler is probably his most well-known victim because of the whole News of the World phone hacking scandal and the fact it took, I think, almost six months to find her body. Also, just a side note, Sal, did you know that he buried her right near where we live? Um, I don't know if I did know that. Where so it's literally like when we used to drive to college from my house, we'd drive straight past the woods where he buried her. It's like just before you get to the M3. Weird. Have you seen that amazing BBC documentary on it? On Levi Belfield? It's on um, the like uh, the police investigation that led to his arrest. Um, I feel like I've watched a documentary. I don't know if it was a BBC one. Oh, there's, no, there's, sorry, not a 
documentary, it's a drama. Oh, no. You need to watch it, it's so good. Can you remember what it's called? Uh, no, but I'm sure I'll be able to giggle it in a jet. Right, perfect. Okay, yeah, well, I definitely will watch that then. Um, so, yes, basically, Levi Belfield has reportedly admitted to other inmates that he committed the Chillenden murders. And actually, for many who are, like, quite familiar with Levi Belfield's crimes, this probably doesn't seem too far-fetched. Belfield killed two of his victims by hitting them over the head with a hammer. He has also been suspected of committing a number of other attacks in the Walton and Twickenham area of London that involved attacking women with hammers. Belfield would have been 28 years old at the time that the Russells were attacked. However, he did live over 100 miles away from the crime scene. Although, in 1996, Belfield was reportedly driving a beige-coloured car and was known to travel far and wide to dispose of his victims' bodies and attack women, so it doesn't seem particularly far-fetched. Adding to this, Josie Russell reportedly told police that her attacker had yellow hair, was about 25 years old, and described him as tall like her father, who is six foot tall. She said the man's hair was spiky and his build was similar to the interviewing detective, who reportedly weighed 20 stone. Josie Russell was never able to identify Michael Stone in an identity parade, and some say that that's because the man she was looking for was Levi Belfield. Much like Josie's alleged statements to the police, Belfield had spiky bleached hair in 1996, he was six foot one, and he was, and actually still is, an absolute fucking unit, and I do not mean that in a positive way. And when you compare this to Michael Stone, who was only five foot seven, had brownish hair, and also was a heroin addict, so was rather thin, it does make you wonder if the wrong man has been convicted. Yeah, so from what you've said so far, I am quite surprised at this point, because as you said, it's all very circumstantial, the evidence against Michael Stone. Um, And so even before you mentioned Levi Belfield, I was quite surprised that the prisoner's testimony was bared quite so much weight at the trial, Mm. when actually you would think they would be reasonably unreliable witnesses. And as you were speaking, I was thinking that I'm not sure what relevance the prosecutors going to the prison and listening to each other through a heating pipe in the wall or whatever. I don't see how relevant that is, because just because you can do that, that doesn't make the fact they spoke through it or the in particular, the fact that he spoke about committing the murders through it any more likely, does it? I mean, if that's just a common way of talking to the person in the cell next door, I don't really see that as any sort of concrete proof that they therefore must have had a conversation in which Michael admitted to the crimes. Mm, No, I definitely agree with that. I don't, I think that it's because it's the only thing they had. That's probably why they padded it out so much by going to prison and testing it and reading Harry Potter books and all the rest of it. To me, it just sounds like they're just trying to pad it out so they can have probably more kind of evidence to bring to the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose maybe that if this crime had happened now, we would traditionally now expect more weight to be placed on DNA evidence over circumstantial. I guess back in 1996, maybe it was more commonplace that circumstantial evidence was enough if there was a significant amount of it because actually I do appreciate that their techniques probably weren't there then to be able to be as confident in DNA evidence but it does still sound like there is quite a gaping hole I mean I'm not saying that Michael Stone sounds like a stand-up citizen Hmm. or that it's completely impossible he did commit these crimes but I was thinking like for example when you were talking about him being quite a scrawny heroin addict that Actually, would he not find it reasonably hard at that point to 
overpower three people and tie them up. I mean, I'm sure that the Russells were terrified, but actually that's still quite a feat, isn't it, for someone who may not have a very strong physical presence to actually get three people, regardless of whether they're children, all tied up. I mean, I'm sure they were struggling to mm. some extent. No, I, d- I literally definitely agree with that. Like, from like looking at photos and stuff, he was quite thin in 1996. And if we think about, like, my mum, who's five foot seven, and Michael Stone was five foot seven, and my mum's like, what, like, nine stone wet through or something ridiculous, probably less than that, probably like eight stone wet through. And and she would no way be able to do that. And I understand that she's a woman and has kind of less physical strength, but there is no way that she, someone of that physique, would be able to overpower three individuals like that. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that it's just the absolute vast difference in uh, Josie Russell's kind of statement to the police because I I fully understand that you maybe can't put too much weighting on a nine-year-old who's suffered severe brain trauma and also like mental trauma as well surrounding the attack I'm sure things that she remembers Mm. maybe are different to how it actually happened and I understand that to a nine-year-old everyone looks way taller and bigger than they are but I don't think really for anyone they would compare someone who's got quite a, a small physique to the police officer who reportedly weighed 20 stone like there's a massive difference between there there's do you know what i mean yeah that even a child can understand and yeah, yeah and i think what strikes me here is yes like you say the child's been through very extreme trauma but i don't particularly understand why you would place less weight on her testimony about her attacker's build and a look than you would on some bored prisoners who probably quite regularly make up things that one another have said so it just does seem to me yeah slightly strange that they would clearly completely neglect her recollection of the event when actually that's got to be as close as factual evidence as you've got I mean I appreciate one of the other witnesses saw and drafted up the ether that matched Michael Stone but but it also matches it also matches Levi Belfield. It's really it's really weird if you look at photos of um Levi Belfield in 1996. It it could be either of them. And you know like Efits are just notoriously just shy, aren't they? But I mean, well that's the problem with them. You sort of see what you see the similarities you want to see, don't you? So yeah, I think yeah. In a lot of these things, if you convince yourself that they are a good fit, then actually you will find those similarities when you're then looking at a random sketch, basically. Yeah, I like literally. I could, I totally agree with you. And kind of going back to what you said about bored inmates making up confessions, the confession that Damien Daly said on the stand was that Michael had allegedly said through the cracks in the heating pipe, "I tied them up with wet towels whilst their dog barked, and one of them tried to run away." And all of that information, the being tied with towels, the fact that their dog was there, and the detail about Josie trying to run and get help. All of that was written in the newspapers before Michael was arrested. So I don't really understand how the prosecution can put so much weight on that information that any of us could have got up on the stand and said because all you had to do was read a newspaper to know that information. Yeah, absolutely. And that really surprised me because when you initially mentioned that the inmates had come forward saying this, in these cases when that happens, you typically assume they've divulged some information that isn't known to the public. So for it to be a completely generic statement, I think, yeah, that's really surprising. Yeah, so on that, BBC Wells actually reported that Belfield's confession of the crime to other inmates that I kind of mentioned briefly earlier, apparently that confession had details in it that only the police or the murderer would know. And obviously we don't know what that 
what those details are obviously the police don't want to reveal that kind of information um but to me that's incredibly surprising then that there's one person who confession basically was taken from newspapers and the other confession that reportedly um has got information in it that only the police or the murderer would know so it kind of looks more and more likely that Belfield might have done it yeah and the other thing that I was thinking was that actually I know that Michael's obviously got a very checkered criminal history but actually previously all of his crimes to me sound like they were really financially motivated Mm -hmm. and in the times when it was armed etc that's obviously to get the person out of the way Mm -hmm. now i understand that the attacker in this instance started off by in theory asking for money um but you'd kind of it doesn't sound to me like michael was at a stage in his criminal career where he would then upon them not having money just senselessly murder three people yeah if that makes sense it seems quite a jump we talk about it a lot i know we do but that does seem like a huge escalation in behavior and let's remember that whoever did this they didn't walk away with a single penny so michael's criminal history was all about feeding his drug addiction Mm. which actually in no way did this crime do whereas levi belfield obviously we know that what he got out of it was the act of murder Mm itself and it seems more plausible therefore that maybe his if it was him him just saying oh if you've got any money was almost just kind of a ploy to distract and scare them Mm -hmm. and actually what he was really there to do all along was murder them so i don't know i can i can definitely see the appeal actually of the fact that levi belfield is a better fit for this crime absolutely because on that point obviously that fits with the um statements that Josie Russell said about the fact that um, Lynn Russell said, oh, I can go back to the house and get money. If it was Michael Stone and he was trying to fund his drug habit, then he would just say, yeah, like, yeah, I want the money. Adding to that, Lynn um, was wearing an expensive watch and necklace and they were left at the scene of the crime. So I don't think this was at all motivated by money or, um, yeah, trying to get funds for for anything, really. I don't think it was motivated by money at all because... um, they would have just taken the watch and the other items that were left at the scene that, that you know, he would have been able to pawn off and get some money from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also possibly not batter them to death. Yeah, yeah, completely. And uh, like you say, I think that's very telling that none of her jewellery is taken. And also, if you were Michael, for argument's sake, and like you say, Lynn said, come home and you you can have some money. Actually, that could have been, I don't doubt he probably still would have injured them. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of hopefully make sure they can identify him or something. But actually, he had a chance on a platter there to not only take money, but also probably rob whatever else he wanted out of their home. And for a drug addict, you know, particularly a heroin addict, I really think that that would have been definitely the most appealing option in this instance. Yeah, rather than just this, just which seemed like a completely personal and aggressive and... It was an attack that was motivated by violence rather than motivated by anything else because there was no need to tie them to the tree, blindfold them, and then bludgeon them to death. Absolutely no need for that whatsoever unless your main motivation was to attack them and to violently kill someone, which is something that Levi Belfield regularly did. Completely. So I guess then my next question is, do we know why the police never really pursued Levi as an option? Do you think it's because they already had... A victim behind bars i mean i can understand to be honest why a jury did convict michael i think that it gives 
every human being peace of mind mm-hmm. to think they're putting away a murderer. I think every juror probably would have disliked Michael and desperately... You want to believe you've got the man, don't you? I think even if there probably is a niggle of doubt, it probably provided every single one of those jurors comfort to think we're locking up a monster, no one else will be hurt, rather than actually this could be someone on a loose. And I doubt anyone really felt sorry for him either. I mean, he'd already committed some fairly significant crimes. Mm -hmm. But I do find it strange, though, that the police, whose job it is to really make sure these links are investigated properly it surprises me they didn't maybe look into the possibility that it was a wrongful conviction more um so yeah obviously at the time i think um at the time of the attacks and at the time of um his conviction michael stone's conviction levi belfield was kind of not that well known to the police um and yeah everything all of that was going on with his crimes or whatever sort of in the background but i mean afterwards um i think the main reason the police from what I can see, haven't pursued Belfield is because his former girlfriend alibied him for the day of the attacks. Um, and she's absolutely certain that he was there on the 9th of July, 1996 with her because she says that's her birthday. Um, or they were okay. celebrating her birthday. Um, and because she's the one who dobbed Belfield into the police about the other murders, I kind of wonder if maybe that's why they're not pursuing it. Although you have to wonder if maybe she would offer or might offer a form of protection over him because this was kind of like the first time he'd been accused of murdering children. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I don't know, I wonder whether when you're still... She presumably would have still been with him for several years after this. Loads, yeah, exactly. Loads of years after. So maybe it's one of those things that would be hard to admit to yourself, actually. It's one thing if you realise that your partner's a murderer and dob them in and break up with them but it's another thing to acknowledge to yourself you might have been living with a murderer for a really really long time particularly like you say one of children yeah because when she came forward and she and she dobbed him into the police about Belfield's murders it was because she'd found like I think I'm pretty sure it's because she found a magazine or something that had um um like all the cuttings out of like people with blonde hair and stuff like that so yeah that was a long time after these murders were committed like at least probably minimum five years after so maybe it is that that she didn't want to have to admit to herself that she'd been living with someone like that for that long who maybe she could have stopped the other murders happening i don't know yeah absolutely um so have any charities or anything ever looked into um michael stone's case i'm just thinking along the lines of making a murderer and things where actually there is enough evidence to and well in my mind definitely to question the conviction of michael stone um not that i can tell at all there are um there's like a website out there that is kind of like um has loads of information on it about why michael stone is wrongfully in prison and um the fact that he didn't do it and it also links belfield in that as well like most of the reports do link belfield to it as well um michael stone's lawyer is absolutely certain that he's innocent and um he's kind of advocating for change in the conviction but I mean without any new evidence there isn't really anything anyone can do and I also feel like it's maybe different to like making a murder and stuff like that and maybe a lot of people don't want to get involved in it because this was such a brutal crime for this area like it is such a quiet happy close-knit village and I just think that people don't want to admit that maybe the wrong person's behind bars for this like really brutal crime that tore up this absolutely like sacred neighborhood basically no and i completely understand that the only thing i guess that surprises me slightly is really that technology has come on such a long way that 
actually, I would have in some ways thought that new DNA evidence or something might be available now, given the, yeah, the advancements in the crime technology that we've got. I would have wondered whether they could re-examine some of it. And even if actually it was just to prove that it was Michael Stone. Okay, yeah. So, at, but at the time, so sorry, I thought I mentioned this earlier, but I guess I didn't. At the time, um, Michael Stone's DNA was tested and it didn't match the DNA that was at the um, crime scene. And his fingerprint also didn't match the bloody fingerprint that was left on Josie Russell's l- lunchbox. And I tried to look into why Levi Belfield's DNA has not been compared with the sample um, with the sample DNA that was taken from the crime scene. And I can't find the information on it anywhere. And I'm just wondering if maybe there just isn't enough of that sample left because obviously each time you test DNA, you take a little bit more of the sample away. So I wonder if maybe they just don't have the specimen sample anymore to test against because I think that would have been the first thing you would do if you've got this other suspect and massive documentaries are doing... Um, so like there, there's loads of documentaries out there that kind of connect Belfield to this crime. Um and I don't understand why no one's doing any DNA evidence testing on that. I don't know what the reason for that is. No, I completely agree. Particularly because even if it's not Belfield, there's got to be other other possible suspects that may well, 20 years later, be on file that may come up as a match. But like you say, I guess you have to assume maybe the samples have degraded sufficiently that it's not possible or that they just still consider this a closed case that doesn't warrant reinvestigation but it does seem surprising given there was no dna evidence that pl- firmly placed him there at the time mm-hmm. and i think it's even more striking you saying that it wasn't even not tested but it actually wasn't a match at all because to me that suggests at minimum there was someone else mm-hmm. at the crime scene even if it was i don't know someone who tampered with it mm-hmm. as opposed to any kind of accomplice i still think that yeah is alarm bells for me really yeah i definitely i don't understand that either um i read in one report i'm pretty sure that someone had maybe suggested that the bloody fingerprint on the lunchbox was lynn russell's but that you they would be able to test that so i don't i don't know i don't know what kind of has been tested and what hasn't but i know that michael stone's dna doesn't match the dna at the crime scene um or the dna that they recovered anyway um so yeah like you said that's massive alarm bells Actually, additionally, something that I just remembered as you were speaking, um, in one of the BBC reports that I read, an eyewitness who had given statements to the police at the time of the murders, I'm not sure if it was the eyewitness who gave um, the uh, details to the sketch artist for the e-fit, but I know that this woman um, had spoken to the police on that day because she said that she'd seen a man driving a beige car and that he'd pulled out in front of her. So it might have been the same woman, I'm not sure. Either way, she said that... um, she'd given statements to the police at the time of the murders and then later saw a photo of Belfield on the news for presumably the like subsequent murders that he committed and she was convinced that that was the man that she'd seen because she said the photo in the photo he was wearing a very striking ski jacket that had um buttons that did all the way up and came over his mouth um and she said in that photo that's what he was wearing and that's what she'd seen the man wearing who was driving that beige vehicle God, this really just shocks me then that not more proper police investigation has been done on this case because if for no other reason, I mean, I know they're both in prison and behind bars, but actually it is what the justice system is about, is prosecuting the right person for the right crime. And regardless of Michael Stone's history or the fact that Levi's in prison anyway, I think that 
all of the victims deserve justice and the right person to be sent down or even acknowledged for their crime. And actually, if Michael Stone has served a sentence for a crime he didn't commit, I think you owe it to those people, even if it's a slim chance, to to review it and maybe give them some freedom back even yeah. if you know they've served most of the sentence by this point mm-hmm. so i do find it quite sad and really surprising that this case hasn't been reopened yeah so it is bizarre to me as well and it does it does appear to be a miscarriage of justice and it's not something that we know you know all of my research is heavily I like I'm heavily reliant on everything that I can find online and documentaries that I can watch but there isn't one kind of documentary or report that I've read that doesn't kind of flag up Belfield as like a possible um suspect in this crime and it does deserve kind of some investigation I would have thought I did read somewhere that the criminal case review commission are reviewing the claims that Belfield may have been the real killer but this investigation is still under review at the time of recording and that st- investigation started years ago. So I don't know if it's just one of those things that it says it's under review but no one's really working on it or if really they are looking into maybe possible ways, maybe DNA testing that we spoke about, I don't know. It's possible they're looking into it but it does really just seem that they've just said that it's under review but maybe they just, maybe it's maybe it is, maybe it is and I don't know. Yeah, and because I, I think it the Belfield argument is definitely very compelling but even if you take him out of the equation I don't think that the evidence against Michael Stone sounds particularly strong regardless so and then that obviously if that is the correct case that leaves a possibility open that the person who did commit these crimes if it wasn't Michael is still out there Mm -hmm. and in that case I think it should be even more important that the evidence is re-examined here to really make sure that whoever did this awful, awful thing, because this was an incredibly brutal and senseless murder, I think there can be no room for error in making sure that the perpetrator really is behind bars right now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I echo all of that. I think it's... It does seem shocking, and it kind of begs the question if Michael Stone would have been convicted on this evidence, if this were to happen now. Um, I think the general view is that he... I don't think so. No, I don't think he would either. I think the general view to everyone, though, is that he was convicted twice, you know? He had his conviction overturned, and then they had the retrial, and he was convicted again. But I think it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning. Like, of course they want to just get someone convicted of this crime because it was so brutal and it really just shocked the entire area that they were living in it's not really surprising that this was the only suspect that they had at the time that they just wanted to get him behind bars yeah completely i agree um so yeah like i said and said many times michael stone is still in prison for this offense um and is serving out his life sentence behind bars if we get any more information on this or if there's any updates we'll of course update you in a later episode um Josie Russell did go on to make a full recovery she's actually back living in that family home she was living in at the time of the attack she moved back in there with her fiance and she says that she finds great comfort in the fact that she still has her mum's horse Rosie which is really lovely oh Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, then please tell your friends. We'd love to reach as many listeners as possible to tell these cases too. Um, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on Sunday. Thanks guys, bye. And don't forget that if you want to comment or put across any of your ideas, you can find us on Instagram at infraction.thepod and also on Facebook now. All likes and shares, as always, are really appreciated. Bye. Bye. <laughs>